Well, that if there wasn't like blood, shit, piss, something on stage at the end of a number, it wasn't drag. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there and the people that they used to know. This week, we are talking to the drag queen, storyteller, writer, and board member for the Drag Queen Story Hour, Lil Miss Hot Mess. And you've got to make sure you're saying that right, Lil. Lil, not little, okay? Coming up in the San Francisco scene, Lil Miss, which is what I'm going to call her from now on because we're friends now, got started at the legendary Tea Shack, a night that was held at the Stud, which we unfortunately lost at the beginning of the pandemic. And yes, you can rest assured that you are going to be getting my patented dumb questions about drag throughout this conversation. And I especially go hard in trying to understand the family thing, right? Drag mothers, drag daughters, what the expectations are, how you can extricate yourself from that relationship if you really need to. Uh, And I should also say, before we get going, that at the time of chatting, Lil Miss had just been caught up in some controversy when a Floridian politician decided to use images of her reading stories to children as part of Drag Queen Story Hour and drum up some hatred and say things about perverts and freaks and all that gay panic stuff that I thought we'd moved beyond. So that comes up a little bit in the conversation. You don't need to know the whole backstory to appreciate what we talk about. But if you do want to know more, I've made sure to include a link to an article about the story in the show notes for this episode. Right, shall we get into it? the phrase before witchy magic Mm -hmm. if i were to ask you to define that could you (laughs) no Uh, (laughs) no i mean (sighs) is it just like there's a stevie nicks on every corner or (laughs) yes no i mean kind of there is a general culture in San Francisco that leans a little bit towards the mystical or to what we might call the woo that, you know, obviously not everyone in the city subscribes to, but I think... Well, yeah, because there's all those tech bros. There's all the tech bros. I mean, there's always been like a small group of conservatives or there's... There, San Francisco has its own diversities, but yeah, there there is a way in which you can't swing a purse without someone talking about astrology or tarot or their psychic or... Getting their rocks out of their bag. Yes, consulting their crystals, talking about their intuitive counselor, those sorts of things. So it's more about the people that you come across, not that you felt a magic in the air. Well, that too. I mean, I don't know. I still remember this one person who I worked with who was like, oh yeah, the witches, 
they all know that the magic is in San Francisco and that's why they're all here. You know, like I do think that there is a certain magic to it, even if that's just the sort of like mystique of the city, you know, it's like fogginess, it's temperament, it's culture. It, it yeah, it's, it's, it, it really is hard to sort of put your finger on, but there, there's something also just very romantic about the city as well, that like whenever I'm back, cause I don't live there anymore. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm back, I still feel so drawn to it. And so even though in some ways I feel not fully pushed out of it, but like it was kind of time for me to leave and and it's become so expensive that it's hard to have a sustainable life there. Like I still can't quit it and I still love it. And it still like makes me emotional sometimes when I'm just like walking around the hills of San Francisco. So it is really hard to put your finger on, but there is something that I would say is kind of mystical about the city in general. And so at the point that you'd moved, did Lil Miss exist? <laughs> I mean, I've always wanted to be a drag queen, even before I uh-huh. had the language for it. I mean, I was always that kid who liked to perform and who liked to dress up. You know, I was that quintessential queer kid who put on my mother's clothes and put a towel over my head and thought it was a wig. And you know, what color? Oh, I don't remember. I want to say like a yellow, but maybe that's just because that's what I have now when I do the same thing. But um, yeah, probably more of like a an 80s, like a sea foam oh. or maybe like a coral. Oh, yeah, you know, I can that see was definitely that the palette yeah. at the time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I would put on shows in my parents' backyard and make little costumes for the neighborhood girls to be in the shows that I would direct and things like that. Oh, and then boss them around. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Typical, typical stuff. And yeah. So, I mean, again, I think even though I didn't necessarily have the language for drag per se, I was already doing it in a certain way, but I think in college I really started to, like I started watching Tu Wong Fu and Priscilla Queen of the Desert and other, you know, media about drag queens. Mm-hmm. And I I knew I wanted to do it. But yeah, it wasn't until I got to San Francisco that I really actually tried it out. And at first, actually, I, I wasn't Little Miss Hot Mess and I wasn't doing femme drag. I was in this troupe called Hogwarts Express, <laughs> which did this kind of uh, Harry Potter drag musical extravaganza where we retold Harry Potter to be a much more queer tale. And I played Neville Longbottom in that. So Uh, um, I don't know why I didn't play a femme character, but... They were all taken, I assume. They were all taken. But it's funny because most of the male characters in that were drag kings. And most of the femme characters were like not drag queens, but um, like burlesque performers. Oh, okay. I mean, I played a very sissy Neville Longbottom, so <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't butching it up by any means, but it was a, a different mode of performance to be wearing pants, you know? So what was the journey towards drag like for you? So it wasn't like, oh, this again is me making assumptions. <laughs> Make them. You didn't feel like shame about like, oh, I'm interested in this. Maybe I shouldn't be. No. But there was something that meant that it wasn't until your early 20s that you did start experimenting. I think I just didn't have the space or the platform or the community Mm -hmm. to experiment with it in. I mean, throughout my college days as well, you know, I guess I had a very kind of genderqueer presentation in my day-to-day life. Like I would wear skirts and, and things like that and kind of intentionally tried to femme up my appearance. But yeah, I just, I didn't really have any opportunities to perform 
or even really to see drag. I mean, I went to college at a very small liberal arts college that was very insular. People weren't going into the city to see shows and things like that. So I, I, I sort of knew it existed somewhere, but didn't really have the mm -hmm. wherewithal to get there at the time. And so those first steps then, what did they look like for you? Well, I started being around this community of mainly drag kings through the Hogwarts Express. And then I finally just started going. And this is where, again, the stud comes in. You know, I had been going to some parties and things at the stud, but really the legendary party in San Francisco at the time was at the stud and it was on Tuesday nights and it was called Tranny Shack, although usually we call it Tea Shack now. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to call it Tea okay. Shack from now on. But it was hosted by drag legend Heclina and it had been running since the mid 90s. So, you know, over 10 years. Um, and it had grown out of some other clubs. There was a club called Clubstitute and there was a club called Uranus, like maybe late 80s or early 90s, that also kind of just lives in the legendary status of my mind. I don't. <laughs> I don't know too, too much about it beyond, you know, what people have told me and what I've read in some books and things. But, you know, these were all sort of known for being less pretty and glamorous mm -hmm. and pageanty and much more kind of artsy and punk and DIY and fuck you and in your face and everything. And it, it's funny because in some ways my drag, I think, is more... It's not like super pretty, but it is a little bit more traditional. It's a little more campy. You know, I don't mind doing a Broadway musical or doing a, a pop song or something like that. Whereas a lot of those Quick, queens, what's your favorite Broadway musical? Uh, Gypsy, okay. I might say. Oh, no, sorry. No, 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 no. I can't, oh, my God. I can't even believe I just said that. A Chorus Line is, of course, okay. my... Which is also one of my roots, my gay roots. Huh? What? Are you familiar with a gay root? No. Unless we're using the Australian meaning of the word root. I don't know the Australian version of root. <laughs> it's having sex. Oh, oh. Like fancy root, yeah. Oh. That was my really bad Australian accent. I'm so sorry. So <laughs> sorry. That is not what I meant. And yeah, there's not even really a way to twist that. But no, I mean, people often talk about gay roots. I don't know where it came from. I sort of associate it with that movie, but I'm a cheerleader. Uh, okay. But I think that that's kind of just playing off of it. But anyway. It's like the seeds of... It's the seeds, yeah. It's it's those moments where you knew you were gay or in hindsight you, you should have yeah, known yeah, that you were yeah, gay, yeah, you know, okay. yeah. So that's like every day of my life from year zero to... 17. Yes, okay. exactly. Exactly. But anyway, a chorus line, when I was in elementary school, I did this theater camp. And for some reason, we did a production of a chorus line, which seems sort of not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, because I was like five or six years old. But I sang one singular sensation. And I had like a little cassette and I would Aww. listen to it and sing it on the bus. And, and it um, made friends with everyone. Yeah, yeah, everybody just joined me and it was a beautiful chorus and we did a kick line. Um, no, but I one time got in trouble for singing the song Tits and Ass because I didn't know what those words meant. I just was singing along to it. But anyway, so yes, a chorus line still is my favorite musical. But Gypsy's a close second. Okay. Yeah, I always find it fascinating that American schools like make their kids do musicals and that there are like enough kids that can sing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it's one thing we're doing right over here. <laughs> as, as a child, I think I was really envious of that. But now as an adult, I'm like, what? <laughs> it's so weird to put kids through that. What are you doing? Anyway. I suppose. Got to toughen them up to be a queen. 
So wait, <laughs> hang on. I've taken us way off topic. I mean, we had to get the musicals out of the way. Broadway musicals. Oh, shit. What were you saying? Oh, I was saying that I, I'm a queen... Oh, yes. He doesn't shy yeah. from a yeah. musical. Mm. And um, I guess I was saying that I I knew that I wanted to be in this, like, slightly more underground, slightly more artistic drag scene, even if that wasn't the style that I was always performing in myself. Um, and why do you think that is? I think that's because, and again, not to overly intellectualize oh, no, my come on, practice, come on. but for me, drag always was, like, a political practice, right? It always was about having some way of pushing buttons and saying something in the culture, not just about being pretty. And, you know, no shade to people who are doing that, but that, yeah, that has never been my orientation towards drag or towards life. But then, so why is your aesthetic the way it is? I have a sweetness to me. I just, I can't <laughs> help it. I don't know. You know, like, I I am a goody two-shoes at heart. I am a nerd at heart. I am an overachiever at heart. And so... I don't know. I, I, I feel like when it comes to like the true punks, you know, like the people who are like truly lighting things on fire or, you know. Defecating in a bucket. Right. Well, that if there mm. wasn't like blood, shit, piss, something on stage at the end of a number, it wasn't drag or it wasn't T-Shack drag, you know. And so that wasn't quite me. Although, you know, I've dumped a bucket of paint over my head. I've I've been involved in other people's numbers where there was cum all over somebody. You know, like, I can step outside of my box, but I... Wait, real cum? Sorry, I know this isn't the point of the story. Not but... real cum. Oh, oh, know. okay. Because no. I was like, where would they have collected that much? <laughs> no, I still remember, though, this one queen doing this number that was all about cum. And she had this, like, giant bucket. And, yeah, someone asked her what her recipe was. And she just said, family secret. <laughs> I think it was paper mache. It was was a really good consistency. Um, I'm sure there were websites with recipes. Yeah. I'm sure, yes. Look that up later. (laughs) Um, What was I just going to say? I just lost my train of thought. Oh, I was going to say that, you know, I've never thought of myself as having a persona in drag that's like different from who I am. Like I've never sort of intentionally built a character. But I feel like the part of me that comes out is like, the little girl at a talent show or the like kind of oblivious, awkward teenager at her bat mitzvah. You know, there is this kind of like enthusiastic, I'm going to put on a show clownishness. That's, that's part of my drag Mm -hmm. that, that kind of defines it. Earnestness really can't be earnestness. So you've just said (laughs) that you don't view that as a persona. Does that mean that you are campy and earnest by your nature? Uh, it means that part of me is. I think for me, drag draws certain things out of me that don't come out necessarily in everyday life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not so much that I'm like putting it on, but that it's just... Enhanced. It's just falling out when I put on on that look. Do you find that then, that you play with language differently, you are more forthright or a hyper version of yourself when you're a drag? Yeah, put me in a pair of heels and there is a transformation and suddenly, you know, in my everyday life, I'm a little bit more shy. I'm a little bit more reserved. Um, again, I can draw certain things out of me, but like having the wig on, having the heels on, having the makeup on, having the sequins really does feel like a set of armor sometimes. Mm. Like it really does feel like I'm getting dressed to go into battle and, you know, I will be much quicker to interject, to call someone out, to pick a fight, really kind of like put myself out there in a way that 
I'm much less likely to when I'm not mm. when I'm not kind of decked out in that way. So in periods where you are performing a lot and putting your drag on like mm-hmm. every day, at the end of that, is it really hard to transition back to you? I don't think so. I think for me it's I won't say it's a relief, but it is like a decompression. Mm-hmm. Like it is kind of like a like a big sigh and you sort of take it off and I like I think I'm aware and actually I had a a witchy psychic person once tell me that like I needed to be careful about all the energy that I absorb when performing because so many people are kind of foisting their own expectations and just thoughts and opinions on me and so she told me that I should always take a shower after doing drag as a way to like literally cleanse myself and and wash that off me and I don't always do that which I don't know maybe is gross but um, but it I mean you're only human I'm only human sometimes I just go right to bed um but it, it is it is kind of a nice ritual to feel like yeah I'm taking it off I'm washing away all that drama. So just some clarifying questions about this woman. Mm -hmm. Was she saying that specifically to you or was she saying that all drag queens should do that? That's a great question. I recall it being specifically to me and kind of about my demeanor and the way I take on other people's energy. So she was saying, my opinion is don't take on other people's opinions. <laughs> okay, fine. I see the contradiction <laughs> there. But I think she was just saying sort of like when you're in the spotlight, all this shit is being thrown at you and to be aware of that and to be willing to kind of wash it off at the end of the day. I remember she also recommended a particular stone for me to wear as like another kind of pr- form of protection that could help absorb some of that energy. What kind as well. of stone was it? It's lapis lazuli. Oh. I can't even spell yeah. that. I'm, I was going to look it up later, but <laughs> I won't be able to. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and so are you that kind of person anyway that just absorbs other people's energies? Um, that's an interesting question. I think yes and no. I do think I have maybe certain empathic traits in that way where I, I will absorb. And I, yeah, I think I mimic other people's energy or or I meet their energy often mm. in social situations. Um And I mean, thinking now to in the past week, I've been dealing with all this drama with this politician over here who came for me and and for Drag Queen Story Hour. And, you know, that's a very different kind of (laughs) energy and statement that people are putting out about Mm. me. But I think it is still a reminder that like other people's attitudes and energies can impact you. And and it is important to be able to find ways to let that go. Mm. Or know when not to. Right. Right. Yeah. I also, I mean, I'm not the best at explaining astrology, but I do have a Leo moon. Um, in your cupboard? or in your- <laughs> No, a Leo moon in my chart. And that means that I kind of tend to like the attention. I like to reflect the light that's shown onto me, as a moon does, perhaps. Ah. So anyway, so I feel like that also might be partly why she was saying that to me. I don't, I don't remember if she knew my chart specifically, but she, she was a very intuitive person who like, I I literally remember this was at this um, party in the woods, this kind of like bonfire. And I remember she kind of like came up to me and very suddenly like gave me this message, like, (laughs) 
she had just received some information. So I took it very seriously. Oh, okay. So you weren't just like, who the hell are you? Fuck off. No, no, no. Sorry. I knew who she was. But I feel like, yeah, like we kind of just like had this moment of this deep connection where she like saw me and imparted this wisdom. And then I had to think about it for a while. Ah. And and this is the witchiness of San Francisco that I'm talking okay, about. Okay, yeah. Bringing my cynicism <laughs> too much. Yeah, check that out the door. Time for a quick ad break. So, as you know, this show is all about spaces. And one of the things that I am particularly interested in exploring is what are the ingredients to a successful space? Is it about the host? Is it about the people who happen to be there? Is it about the ground rules? Or is it a magical combination of all of the above plus a little bit more? Well, luckily, I have been given given the opportunity to find out. I have recently partnered with Spaces, the new group chat app for queer communities. On Spaces, users can set up their own space within the app, and the one that I have set up is called Lost Queer Spaces, where I will be sharing a little more insight from every episode of this show, but I will also be throwing in some vintage nightclub posters, throwback songs, and a whole heap of embarrassing photos from sweaty nights out clubbing. If you want to know more, all you need to do is find Spaces in the App Store, download it, and set up your profile. And don't worry if you're on the go at the moment, I will make sure to include more details as well as a link in the show notes for this episode. So let's get back to the show, but I hope to see you very, very soon on Spaces. So your first time in drag then? My first time... Performing as Little Miss Hot Mess was at the stud. Brilliant, brilliant. Because yes, that's what we had yes. to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, and I will say I, I had experimented a little bit with going out and about like to some other parties in drag. But yeah, my first time really performing and really adopting that name because, you know, T-Shack had this once a year event called Star Search, which was based on the TV show. And it was a an opportunity for newcomers to get a chance to be on stage. And so I had been, yeah, kind of like dipping my toe in the water, getting dressed up, going out, going to see more of the T-Shack shows um, just as an audience member, and then finally just decided to do it. And I, I asked this one queen, Phonique, who was kind of one of my icons at the time and is now a good friend, but like at the time felt like the celebrity who I was approaching, you know, like, how do you get to do it? Like, how, where did you get started? And she was like, you just have to ask, like, you just sign up, talk to Heclina, she'll put you in at some point or do star search and you just have to do it. And she was totally right. And I'm totally glad that I did it for this kind of like newcomer show. Cause I think it just added this like specialness. And I kind of also came in with what felt like a class of people. Like there were like 10 or 12 people uh. who also were kind of getting their start or, you know, some have been performing backup for other people, but this was like their first kind of debut as a performer. And just to paint the scene, uh, as a child, I was also a figure skater. Um, oh and God. so I decided that I wanted to do a figure skating number as my debut. And it was to the Celine Dion, Barbara Streisand song, Tell Him. 
Okay. And then it went into Super Freak. And so I was on ice skates in guards on stage. The whole thing was like supposed to be a dramatic figure skating routine. The one thing that I did not do, which in hindsight, I'm mad at myself that I didn't do, was I didn't lip sync. And and this was a choice, which again, I don't really know why I had made this choice. But I think I was so like trying to give the realness of the figure skating routine, like give the, the face... Yeah. And the like struggle and the drama of it all that I was like, well, a figure skater doesn't lip sync. So why would I lip sync? Because you're a drag queen. Right. I know. Exactly. <laughs> um, but needless to say, I didn't win. Although I like to think that I came in second, even though that wasn't officially told to me. But I did get a lot of praise from some of the judges and from Heclina. Uh, so how did it work? Did it work like a beauty pageant where they give scores and feedback? Or was it just like this person's a winner, everyone go and drink now? <laughs> I feel like they gave commentary. I don't think they gave formal scores. Um, so do you remember what your commentary was then? Not really. I do remember Heclina coming up to me afterwards and being like, saying, I don't remember exactly what she said, but she did say something very affirming to me. I think I had like a, a pained look on my face because I had lost and felt sad. But I think I think she saw something in me and wanted to acknowledge that. Aww. I wish that someone had just told me to freaking lip sync though, because I don't know why I thought it was okay not to. Just think about how different your life would have been. You would have won. I know if I had won. To Grammys and Oscars. No, I could have been an EGOT by now. Yeah, um, yeah. But no, I think it also kind of lit a fire in me. And I think it was, you know... You always know that whoever wins the drag pageant isn't really the real winner, right? And so... Wait, how do you know that? Or, or that's what we tell ourselves, <laughs> at least. So I think there was a way in which I, I still felt like a winner and I felt like I had been robbed and that made me feel special in a certain way. Uh, yeah. And I also, my other big regret from that night is that I didn't fall harder on stage. Because I, I think there was some commentary maybe earlier in the show that like anyone who injures themselves is like the automatic winner or something like that. You know, and like I was on ice skates, so I should have just done like a full on nosedive. I think I had like one little fall cause I did like a little jump, but I think I should have like mm. truly fallen off the stage. But yeah, it was a fantastic night. It was um, Heclina and Peaches Christ and one of the members of the Go-Go's, the band, the Go-Go's was one of the judges as well. Mm, so. It was Jane, yeah. Oh, Jane. So, yeah, I got to know all these other performers, some of whom I had just, you know, been going and watching and admiring and some of whom were also newcomers. And for a long time after that, it was literally just about, you know, showing up every week, whether you're performing or not, and Mm. being there, being part of the community, being in other people's numbers, getting to know people that way, starting to branch out to shows at other places. There was kind of like a little circuit of different shows on different nights and different hosts and things like that. And and Um, so I've heard this before, that this is the way you kind of make your way in the scene. mm -hmm. Is that something that you just figured out for yourself? Or did someone say you have to show up even if you're not performing because you have to support other people and you have to be part of the community? Or do you just like like people and did that naturally? (laughs) I think I just liked people and I just wanted to do it and I just wanted to be there. And again, maybe not the, the sort of witchy magic exactly that I was talking about before, but there was a magic to it, right? And Mm -hmm. there was a way in which it was just so infectious and enchanting. It didn't feel like there was another option because that just felt like the crowd I wanted to be in. And so 
you know, how many years did it take for you to start lip syncing? <laughs> oh, the next, right after that, I finally started lip syncing. Again, yeah, I don't know why. See, I needed a drag mother and eventually someone did adopt me um, as a Ooh. drag mother. Although in a very, you know, she admitted to me, she was like, I'm the kind of mother who's going to leave her baby behind the dumpster after the prom. So like, don't expect a ton out of me. But but it was a very like sweet and um, I don't know, it was just a moment of recognition where she saw something in me and yeah, I wanted to sort of be part of that and to support me. So how does that work then? Like, are you, when you come on the scene, on the lookout for a mum? Like, is your radar like, ooh, maybe she will, maybe she will. <laughs> and is there a, like a way of broaching that topic with someone? I think it really depends. Or do you wait for them? Yeah, I think it depends <gasps> on the person. Do you I know, mean... oh my God, I've just had an idea. What? Tinder, but for drag queen babies. <laughs> Looking to match with a drag mum. Oh my God, that is truly my worst nightmare. I, <laughs> I support your ingenuity and uh, I look forward to seeing how it turns oh, out. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't we might need some form of payment or something for that. Well, yeah, because then be they could do but... like video tutorials or something after you match yeah. with them. That's true. That's true. That's how you manage yeah. it. Anyway, sorry. So how does it work? How did it work for you? Well, so for me, I think I was so... Um, like, again, I had already been raised a little bit in the drag king community where there wasn't quite that familial relationship mm -hmm. in the same way. Because um, men, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I know. Who wants a dad? No, I mean, there, there's definitely like a family sweetness to the drag kings. But I, I mean, I guess I've heard of drag fathers, but not nearly as frequently as drag mothers. And I think I've also just always been a sort of like go it my own way kind of gal. And mm -hmm. so... And I wasn't enmeshed in the culture enough to even be thinking like, oh, maybe I should be looking for a drag mother. But some people, I think it happens the other way. Like they're out and about, they become friends with people. Some queen points at them with a grizzled finger <laughs> and says, you, <laughs> yeah, you know, you will be my daughter. And traditionally, your drag mother is the person who first paints your face for you or first teaches you how to paint your face. So yeah, I think a lot of times it does happen sort of more organically through relationships that already exist. Um, but yeah, some people get adopted like I did. But you weren't like, oh, I need to get a mum. You were just like, la, 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 here I go. I didn't feel that way. And I, you know, I saw some people who had drag mothers who were kind of demanding, who like wanted the children to be there to carry their bag or to, you know, do <gasps> no. their bidding or to be the automatic backup for them in a number. And not in like a super nefarious, mean-spirited mm -hmm. way, but in a little bit of like a controlling way. And some of those queens are not my favorite queens, just as I think back on who they were. So I think I watched that and felt like, you know, it'd be nice to have some mentorship, but I didn't need to necessarily be kind of like adopted in a family because it did feel like the overall scene was also you know a bit of an extended family as well and so do you know of anyone who has been approached by someone to be their child and that they've had to say no to um because that would be super awkward i'm sure it happens i can't quite think of it um I mean, I have one official drag child who harassed me until I finally said yes. So one official, which means you've got a ton of unofficial ones. And then I've got a couple unofficials. 
you know, I have a couple friends who ended up kind of officially having other drag parents, but who sort of think of me as their unofficial mom or their auntie or something because we were doing a lot of stuff together at the time. Yeah. And there's too much muddiness in it for me. You know, it's a little <laughs> messy. I I like it. I like the messiness. Um, I like, you know, the clear defined lines, <laughs> not like, oh yeah, you'll do until someone else comes along. <laughs> and so who was the person that decided to adopt you? Her name is Jordan Lamore, And she's also, so, so she adopted me. Um, we were in this Carol Channing impersonation contest together. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that um, one, yeah. Yeah, so she won that one, but I also placed fairly well, or I, I mean, I don't know if there was an actual rank in that one either, but <laughs> so she adopted, yeah. And I, I remember her words were, I'm probably going to regret this. <laughs> or or maybe it was that I was probably going to regret this. Someone was going to regret this, but she was offering to be my mother. And yeah, she gave me the kind of speech about how I shouldn't expect much. She might leave me behind the dumpster, but if I was looking for a drag mother, she was happy to be it. And, you know, over the years, she's been very sweet. I don't think we've been, like, the closest mother-daughter like some queens are, but she would lend me things every now and then or send me a little kit of makeup or things like that. And, yeah, always always sends me a note of encouragement when I need one. So, yeah. Yeah, I find it fascinating because just at any point you could just be like, nah, fuck you. <laughs> you could, yeah. People people break up probably with their drag mothers or drag daughters as well. Anyway, should we talk about the stunt? <laughs> sure. So when I first got in touch about this show and about us chatting, why was it the stud? I mean, the stud for many years did feel like my second home or like my church or something or my temple. I'm, I don't go to church, but uh, <laughs> uh, it... Again, it, it was the place that I literally first started performing as Little Miss Hot Mess and was the place that I performed for many, many years. I mean, probably probably regularly for about seven or eight years. And that, again, was between a number of different shows that happened on different nights and with different organizers. And honestly, it's still the place that I think of when I think about performing drag. Like when I am conceiving of a new number or something Mm -hmm. like that, that's where I imagine myself on stage, which is actually really hard for me now because A, I don't live there. B, the stud actually doesn't exist anymore, Mm. only in our hearts. Uh, So that stage is no more. It was a really special place and a special audience and... Yeah, a lot of places aren't like it. And so, like, when I have to do something somewhere else, it's sort of comforting to imagine myself in that space and with that crowd. But then when I actually do perform, it's kind of a letdown because it's often a much more basic, not as exciting crowd. (laughs) Help me understand a bit more. So you've said it's a special space, but why? Yeah, I mean, to give a little bit of the history of The Stud, The Stud was founded, I believe, in the 19th, 60s or maybe the 1950s. And so it was one of the longest continuously operating gay bars in San Francisco and probably in the country and in the world. So it was sort of always known as a bit of an outsider's bar. Like it was always a little bit off the beaten path culturally. Like I think in its early days, it was like a little bit more of kind of like a hippie bar. Um, I know that the term hair fairies was used by a lot of people who would frequent that, which Mm -hmm. I think was like the sort of long-haired flower children version of the gays at the time. And, 
you know, it also used to host punk shows and rock shows. I know like people like Etta James had performed at the stud, you know, on her way up. But yeah, it was, it was just kind of always like an all are welcome here kind of place, which unfortunately, as we know, is not necessarily the vibe of all gay mm-hmm. bars out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it really, I think it, it took it to heart and the people who came to it took that to heart. Yeah, really wanted to create this space that was different, that was kind of anything goes. Um, so how does that feel then? It feels amazing. I don't know. It felt It felt like a... Again, not to get too nerdy, but it felt like a temporary autonomous zone or something, you know, like it felt like this space of freedom in the middle of everything that kind of got enacted by the people who were there. And and in a lot of different ways, like, you know, again, I was joking that at T-Shack, it wasn't a proper show unless there was some kind of bodily fluid on the stage, but also... You know, there were people having sex in the bathrooms and also there were trans girls and a bunch of chasers in the corner. And, you know, there were people dancing on the dance floor and there was like people doing who knows what backstage. And it's hard. It is hard to describe that feeling, but it it did. You could kind of just do anything and you could kind of be anything all at once. And how did that compare to other bars that you found yourself performing at? I mean, it really set the standard for me, but I think it did set the standard for a lot of places. So there were other bars that had a similar ethos or tried to have a similar ethos. Um, I don't know, but there there still was nothing quite like mm. it. Like it's still, it just was, that was it. That was the place to be. That was the place where you knew you were going to see some magic happen. Um, so how do you think it created that? Was it just the fortune of those four walls? Yeah, I mean... Again, I think there's a little bit of magic that was just at play, but I think it was also the people who were there. I mean, there was a lot of looking away at things that should not have happened. I mean, there were like many legends of the many times that the stud had almost been burned down because someone used fire in their number or or just that something like crazy and dramatic had happened or had almost happened. And so it was a legendary space in that, Queer colloquial sense of legendariness. I don't know if you all use that term over in the UK in oh, quite the same way, but help me understand. I mean, it's kind of been overused, I would say, in recent years, especially as like more and more drag and ballroom slang has become yeah. mainstream. Um, I always think of legendariness as that informal mythological storytelling that, like, Again, you don't know exactly what happened at Club Uranus or Club Substitute or T-Shack, but you know that something happened there, right? And you know these like little snippets of stories or you know the little bits of the names or you just sort of get this image in your mind through the ways that people have have talked about things that it carries this gravitas and this sense that something important happened there or something happened in a, in a particular mm. moment. And so I think the stud because of its longevity, had this, like, I don't know, patina or something of all these things that had happened and accrued there. Mm. I know I'm being very, like, wishy-washy about it all, but it <laughs> it's hard to describe a feeling. Um, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah well, that's it the is. conclusion. That's it us is. done. Good. Let's go. Done, um, yep. So what was your response when you found out this dad was closing? I was both devastated, but we had known that it was coming for a while. 
the collective that took it on, like it was only supposed to stay in that space for like a year or so. And it kind of kept getting pushed back. And then it was really the pandemic that was the nail in the coffin for it. And yeah, looking back, like it was a pretty early decision in the pandemic Mm. relatively. Like I feel like it was still in that time where we were like, oh, this is just going to be a few weeks and then we'll get back to it. But I think they had a sense that nightlife was still going to be impacted more dramatically than other aspects of life. And so they closed it. So yeah, it was, it was sad, especially because I wasn't able to go back to kind of like say goodbye to it. Yeah. You know, I've since been back and they painted it this kind of white beige color that's really sad. And it feels like a gut punch to walk by the building because you just have all these memories and, and you have memories of it spilling out onto the sidewalk, right? Of like Mm. the smoker area and having a cigarette with someone or a joint with someone and, yeah, and and all the shenanigans that happened all around the stud, and and now it it just looks like this kind of boring, nondescript building that probably will get torn down sometime soon. So, yeah, it was sad. Although they did have a funeral, a Zoom funeral for the stud, and that that did provide some closure, I would say. So then, will you indulge me? Of course. If you were to go back in time mm-hmm. and give one piece of advice to Little Miss Hot Mess that was showing up to the stud for the very first time after you'd just moved to San Francisco. What, um, what advice would you give? Number one, lip sync, <laughs> as previously discussed. Um, number two, I, I mean, personally, I wish that I had had sex in the bathroom at the stud, frankly. <laughs> you know, I wish I had been a little rowdier in that way. But, you know, teach her own. That wasn't really my journey at the time, so. What, so you're just going to be like lip sync and go and get fucked in the bathroom? Is that the conversation? I think so. I okay. mean, do you want me to elaborate yeah. on that no, 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 that's, that's grand. It's grand. Just don't get splinters. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, but it's sort of just to live a little more. I mean, again, I think in my everyday life, I'm a little bit more reserved. And so I think when I first started going before I started performing, like I was, I was a little shy. I wasn't like as enmeshed in the community. I wasn't looking to hook up and necessarily, um, I didn't know how to flirt, you know, like all these sorts of things. And so I think I wish that I had found a little bit more of that drag confidence in my everyday life as well. And gotten fucked in the bathroom. Do you have any memories from the stud or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, I would love to hear from you. I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories from queer clubbing, and I need your help. Go to lostspacespodcast.com and find the section Share a Lost Space, and then tell me all about what it is you got up to. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Follow Lil Miss Hot Mess on Instagram. Her profile is Lil Miss Hot Mess, and that is Lil spelled L-I-L, don't you know? And also make sure to visit her website, which is lilmisshotmess.com. She's just made it really easy for us. Amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast platform of choice, or... 
just told other people who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. My name is Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. Lost Spaces.